Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host, Titus, and today I'm joined by my old friend, Felix, and we're going to talk about John McTiernan's Predator. Hi, everyone. John McTiernan is a director that I regret is no longer around. He was really great when we were growing up. Yeah, he gave a lot of 80s kids our heroes. I think uh, there's a lot of people feel this way. He was the director of action movies in the 80s and 90s. He made Predator, he made Die Hard, he made The Hunt for the Red October, and the host of other movies, some of them unjustly forgotten, but all of them concerned with the question of heroism, manliness, and action, something that is much missing in movies now. Also made The Last Action Hero, a great uh, show for Schwarzenegger as a star in comedy action as well. John McTiernan was not just the director of action movies, he is also the director who made the best comedy about action movies, Last Action Hero. That movie was written originally by Shane Black, who was the writer of action movies and action comedies in the 80s and 90s. He also has a small role in Predator, and his big action debut was as the writer of Lethal Weapon, also 1987, like Predator. And we'll be doing some talking about both the director John McTiernan and the writer Shane Black in future podcasts. Last week was the 30th anniversary of Predator, the first studio movie made by John McTiernan. Probably only famous for one thing anymore. It has a cast of incredibly muscular American men fighting in the jungles of Latin America. First doing the bidding of the CIA in a vaguely conspiratorial story, and then fighting for their very lives in a kind of horror setting. John McTiernan always tried to find the connections between genres to show the potential of the action movie. This is an action movie that starts as a typical 80s story about muscular American foreign policy finally figuring out who's good, who's evil, and destroying evil with godlike firepower. But then, at the end of the first act, it turns into something entirely different that could become a horror. There's a sudden change from the greatest powers of the most powerful heroes the movies can present to their greatest weakness, the moment when they are annihilated, possibly without a trace, swallowed up by the jungle. It's a real pity what happened to the whole story of the Predator. Uh, It was taken apart into these silly horror movies and uh, Shane Black seems to be trying to recover a lot of that. I've seen a few pictures of his new production coming out next year that he's writing and directing. He seems to have again a crew of really strong men and maybe one or two characters that are more on the innocent side. A kid I think, a woman and a tank. They're going with a tank throughout the jungle or the forest. It does seem that there will be a kind of rebirth of action in that picture. It's remarkable that after 30 years, Shane Black is able to take the Predator franchise back to a serious story about manliness confronting its limits and the limits of being human, somewhere in between science fiction, action and horror. That said, let's get to the start of the movie. There's some kind of Apocalypse Now footage, long chopper scenes, there are massive jungle explosions. And there's a forward operating base somewhere in, next to the jungle from where choppers are going out. Yeah, so there is a kind of similarity. Predator-like Apocalypse Now has this interest in going into the heart of darkness, as the novella by Joseph Conrad put it, that inspired Apocalypse Now. 
There is something that men learn about themselves when they chase their passions utterly beyond human limits. The way it starts is Dutch and his team are landing at this uh, base at the outskirts of the jungle, somewhere in safe territory. Everybody's looking at them. They're shot in a really impressive way and uh, the debriefing session starts. They're being told that uh, this is a kind of a rescue mission. It emerges by degrees that if it hadn't been, Dutch would never have taken the job. I'm not sure how this works out, but it seems like in the beginning it's stressed out that he has a certain principle about the kind of wars that he wants to fight. That brings us to the Reagan references in the story. The Arnold Schwarzenegger character is called Dutch, which is Reagan's old nickname. Schwarzenegger and the other men talk about their past operations. One of them is in Afghanistan, another one of them is in Libya, that's the one he doesn't like, he wasn't a part of that, in reference of course to the bombing of Gaddafi's headquarters in 86. And there's also a reference to a great operation in Berlin that brings us to a serendipitous moment. A predator was actually released on the same day as Reagan's great speech in Berlin, the tear down this wall speech. And so the movie seems to start with a kind of ambiguous support for American foreign policy in the 80s. There's a certain hint that Americans should rather be fighting the Soviets than uh, invading Latin America or small, non-affiliated third world countries. And this does seem to establish a kind of moral code. Of course, Americans should be defending their country, but on the other hand, why bomb Libya, so to speak? That's a small place, unimportant. It's not part of the great conflict between the Soviets and the Americans. There's doubtful wisdom in that setup, but it suggests a moral principle of protection that goes together very well with the Schwarzenegger character who insists on rescuing people. Rescue allows him to show his superiority. People have to get in trouble and to need you before you can rescue them and you have to be better than they are so as to not end up the way they did. But on the other hand, it doesn't involve destruction. It doesn't assert supremacy by death. These seem to be the limits within which he wants to operate. It also seems to be grounded a lot into the, all of the wars that they fought already. There's uh, two characters there, Mac and Blaine. One of them is really, really silent, the other one is really boisterous. But they both fought in Vietnam and they were the only ones to get out alive out of a crew of 30-something and that it had been hell. Somehow they're back. They're going into action again and again and again, and uh, maybe they never really left the place, having survived it, just the two of them. In a way, going back to war might mean that they don't have to deal with the problems that, say, Rambo has to deal with in First Blood, coming home and trying to stay home or finding a home. Yeah, these men are not at home in America. Of course, Rambo wasn't at home in America either. As a returning veteran, he was treated miserably and then hunted down. But in this case, these men don't want to take chances at all. They are, in fact, always at war. They're either coming away from it or going back to it. But that's where they live. And it seems like that is the place where manliness could achieve its greatest expression. That is where the manliest of men have to prove themselves over against their inevitable mortality. These men are not deluded about the fact that they're risking their lives. They just don't seem to know any other way of life. 
and Vietnam does loom large in the discussion as we'll try to show later on but in the beginning what you see is a confident show of training firepower and of course uh, good old-fashioned man-to-man arm wrestling Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers have an impromptu arm wrestling contest that's supposed to establish supremacy at the most basic level of force that's supposed to show something that's on display throughout the first act of Predator, that manliness oscillates between friendship and contest in an unstable way. And therefore, hierarchies are always contestable among men because there's a certain desire to prove oneself and to test oneself against others who are comparable. This establishes a kind of equality, but only among brothers in arms, so to speak, only among the few who face the same risks together. I think as they head into the jungle, uh, there's two choppers that are supposed to land them somewhere beyond enemy lines. Uh, McTiernan makes a great effort to try and show how different the people in the team are. There's people who are really sullen or silent, there's people who crack wise continuously, there's people who are preoccupied with their gear, but they don't get on one another's nerves. They don't bother one another in any way. They really are hewn together we'll be talking later about the characters and how they treat the problem of manliness when they are tested in an extraordinary way but for now let's get to the first set piece this is the show of the great achievements of these men it's the payoff for the opening scenes which show you how confident they are now you get to see them in action you get to see what they're worth the conflict in the Latin American jungle seems fairly straightforward. These men are supposed to destroy a guerrilla compound that's involved in some kind of terrorism or drugs or both. Typical CIA story from the 80s. You have these six men with a seventh CIA. The other six don't like him much for that reason and don't trust him because he in a sense abandoned them. And in another sense he just knows more than they do and more than he will tell. He's not sharing exactly their situation. Their attack on the guerrilla compound is a show of what action cinema does at its best. How it establishes a territory, how it establishes targets and means to destroy them. And then sets about moment after moment, action after action in time, displaying the contest of great abilities. Yeah, I recommend watching the, the initial uh, attack set piece they just take out the few sentries that are between them and the center and then they hit the center really hard and they take out by degrees everything else in disciplined move here we see the director stage the action in the same way the tacticians of the team do it in both cases you see one mind controlling the chaos they disrupt communications they cause confusion by attacking the center and then they pick people off these men are utterly in control of the situation well i want to bring out something that it, it doesn't turn into a night attack for instance they don't buy their time before they attack in the in the night and there's at least one thing that triggers this dutch sees one of the prisoners being executed he turns around and he says we're doing this now again you see a guiding principle in dutch to try and protect people he also spearheads the attack which is the other thing that's not planned he is supposed to be the center, but the way he does it is unforeseen even by him. He notices um, a truck, he puts explosive charges in it and pushes it down a hill, but he only notices that when he gets on site. 
uses the explosive truck to charge at the mess hall. Everybody falls in on the flanks and they do clean up work through the buildings and that ends the attack. Needless to say, there's no intention to negotiate here or any doubt as to whether this guerrilla unit has to be destroyed. The surprise is that a girl somehow sneaks up on Dutch, something that they hadn't counted on. Yeah, and it's something so innocent that you, you don't necessarily have to think about it. This girl will become important later in the plot, but she's not involved in the action, she's just a spectator. At this point it would seem like the movie is done, these people are going home, but this is not an action movie, this is something that's threatening to turn into a horror. The commando was moving in on the compound, had noticed an American chopper that had been downed with the men killed, and then they found the corpses of the men, soldiers like themselves, flayed. That was both a shocking thing to see, unprecedented in its atrocity, and in a certain sense ominous. It portended their own destruction and the removal of their humanity. The fighting against the guerrillas is at some level human warfare. This is something else that goes even beyond torture. It removes the humanity from human beings. There's even a couple of ravens there, and as I'm saying this, I'm wondering, are there really any ravens in that part of the world? They're ominous, aren't they? They portend death. And so it is that at the end of this opening act, there are a couple of events that suggest things are going to go very bad very suddenly. One of them is a small detail. Mac notices that CIA soldier has a poisonous scorpion on his shoulder and kills it for him. Sometimes you get these kinds of predators that you don't see coming. There is a kind of killer that you can only see when once he has killed something. You can only see he was there because something has died. These people operate with remarkable efficiency and are very confident in their endeavor. But they're not at home there. The scorpion is. Yeah, and the scene is also witnessed by the predator himself. By this point, he has revealed himself to us, not to the special forces crew, in that we have caught glimpses of the special forces crew in his own vision. Seems like he has a power of vision that is technologically supported. He seems to be able to separate living things from the deadly heat in the environment of the jungle. At this point, you can start thinking a little about what kind of uh, being the Predator really is. He's not like the alien of Ridley Scott's story. He's not perfectly adaptable to absolutely any environment. He has to use technology to adapt to the tropical jungle. He uses camouflage as well. He goes through the heights. He has a lot of strength, but he employs all sorts of technology to enable his hunt. What was interesting for me is that it's obvious he picks the season and the place so that the conditions are the worst possible. He has some kind of knowledge that some parts of nature are always deadly. Later on you also see him keeping trophies. He doesn't hoard them, carries some around his neck and you see him cleaning one, taking great care of a particular trophy. But I think that uh, both in the ones that he discards and the bodies that he flays and hangs in trees, all of these carry a meaning as much as the bones that he keeps around his neck. They show the, the varieties of his skills, which I think is supposed to be a, a token of pride. And there's something else, he doesn't really eat them. He doesn't eat anything. The keeping of these bones but not eating them completes the assertion of his superiority to his prey. Maybe he really believes that if he ate them it wouldn't really make him stronger. He's certainly above necessity. He does it because he enjoys the contest. He's a hunter 
and he disdains to fight inoffensive, innocuous things. He is a predator that preys only on other predators. The introduction of his perspective is supposed to suggest something. His war with these human beings suggests that maybe man is also a predator, a predator that can also be prey. The fact that the director introduces his inhuman perspective ties up with one other fact. The only character who had some knowledge of this is the woman. Now, the woman is not a fighter. The fighters are utterly blind to what they're facing. The woman, just like us, the audience, is a spectator to events and is privileged in that specific sense. She has a capacity for being horrified that reveals to her what's happening here, even if she can't quite comprehend it. The men, because they try to understand it in ways that make sense through their tactical war experience, are actually blind to what is in front of them. The predator kills them from afar and from up close. He really practices an art of assassination up until the final confrontation, which is exactly the kind of word that Dutch says he rejects in the beginning. But sneaking up on people and killing them, or killing people from stealth, is exactly what the commando does too. That's why people have special forces. It fits with a certain modern conception of warfare when you want to do as much destruction in a specific place while taking as few risks as possible. It heightens the conflict, it creates soldiers of remarkable abilities, but it is very small scale. Yeah, and it's true that they have to take it on order that uh, this is a rescue mission, and it quickly turns out after the attack that it's nothing like that. The suggestion here is that it's only the intention that separates the human commando from the predator. The things they do are remarkably similar, and indeed the descent of the Americans in the jungle and the descent of the alien to planet Earth are parallel introductory scenes. The fact that as an audience we are introduced to this unusual predator is supposed to teach us that what is at stake in the movie is more serious than the conflict with that guerrilla. What is at stake is who is more at home in the jungle, who is the superior fighter, that is to say, can human beings defend themselves ultimately from the greatest threat that faces them. Yeah, and it's this fact, the fact that uh, Mac defends Dylan from the Scorpion that seems to clinch it in for the Predator. From here on in, the attacks on the Special Forces crew start because he had seen the Scorpion being killed. He looks at it, he sees it's dead, he goes after them. He had proof of the fact that they were also lethal. The suggestion there being that as man is to scorpion, so also is the predator to man. That as human beings are superior to other animals, so also there are beings that are superior to human beings that could pose an existential threat. The contest in the jungle is about the meaning of the statement that being is striving, that life itself is war. Without seeking that kind of conflict, these men find it for a serious rather than an accidental reason. It is their claim to self-sufficiency, at least as a unit, their claim to act fearlessly that naturally faces them with this kind of threat. And as we see in Act 2, one by one these men are killed and the virtues they used to destroy the guerrilla in the first act are exactly what gets them destroyed in the second act. In certain ways, it's not their failures, it's their successes that doom them. 
that's a very interesting thing to consider, especially of course in an action movie that's dedicated to showing the excellences of men. Yeah, so if you think about it from a tactical point of view, the first person who dies, Shane Black's character, dies because the woman is trying to get away and they have to break formation. They have to start running after the woman. It seems like the order that uh, is inherent in keeping formation and advancing in an orderly way is predictable and reliable, but if things uh, change, it also becomes exploitable or uh, their position becomes exploitable. And that's the first time that the predator strikes it. shoots Shane Black's uh, character and then drags him away in front of the horrified Anna. Yeah, this woman has been feisty in the first act but is more or less catatonic throughout the second act for this reason. The first two die, they portend something. From now on, the commando is no longer in control of circumstances. The perfect execution, both as director and as story of the first set piece, suggested that these men are in control of their circumstances, that they know what's happening and how to deal with it, and they act expertly, not one of them is killed. Now, two already have been murdered without the other five even understanding what has happened. What they learn from the woman when they do get her to say what she has seen is that the forest took them. The way they react to this strange fact, this unexplainable death and disappearance, shows the way they think in different ways about manliness and uh, about their own relationship to savage nature or to the possibility that life is horrifying. The first one to get killed, the gentlest of them all, was actually trying to pacify the woman. He didn't want trouble, he just wanted to go on with things. The reason they get killed, it seems, is because that assumes that life is going to be all in all all right. That the jungle itself is not a danger to them. And the jungle therefore shows up and then destroys them. At this point, the predator is unknown to the commando and still under his power of camouflage. But they wear camouflage as well. Camo uniforms, they use black paint to conceal the color of their bodies. It's just that their camouflage is far inferior to the predators. And at this point, it seems like the predator is just a better version than they are with respect to the capacity for destruction without exposing oneself to risk. That's an important trait of the predator, that he doesn't take risks and he is not himself in danger for the most part. That is implied in superiority in war. It is not about having a fair fight. It is about the greatest virtues that can be used in war, offering the greatest certainty available of victory. So I think if they really understood that the camouflage is worthless when faced with the predator, they would be far less confident. The Hawkins' death leads to their spreading out and trying to figure out what is attacking them. They get no answers from Anna and uh, they decide to spread out. At this point, Blaine is alone, he's trying to be as stealthy as he can with a minigun around his waist, and he gets it in the head by surprise. Mac is looking at him, sees at the same time his best friend dying, and uh, an invisible attacker. Starts shooting, and uh, the predator runs away. Mac afterwards picks up Blaine's minigun and starts uh, shooting into the wilderness. He continues to shoot and rage. And this is the really peculiar thing that everybody starts shooting their guns. And they do this for two or three clips each. Up until Max's minigun is uh, completely depleted. Only then do they stop and ask him what's going on. They're firing wildly without a target because there is no target. This is completely at odds with the way the soldiers have behaved in their initial attack. 
they're no longer in charge and they're going to act hysterically actually Max seems to do this because he's seen the eyes of the demon and uh, he he wants to to destroy it two of their men are already dead and they have no idea how it happened or what to do about it all the technology does not in fact create a kind of tactical mind Billy surveys the area and uh, he reports that there's absolutely no dead bodies, absolutely anything. We do see that there's some traces of blood, but it is green. Green as the jungle almost. Nobody notices that except Anna. She doesn't speak with anybody. Now, after they talk about there being no bodies at all, they try and, uh, again, assess what might be doing this. They establish that Mac has seen something, that it is not something of this world, as Billy portends as well and that they're going to ambush it. They have to figure out a way to gain an advantage. The way they're thinking about this is they're going to set all of their mines, all of their tripwires in a defensive position and lay traps, capture the thing or kill it. So at this point they're still thinking in terms of their self-sufficiency. They've brought all sorts of equipment with them, not just the mines and the firepower, but also sensors. And they think that that will enable them to identify the threat and deal with it. They're already on their way out. They're already thinking in those terms, making it out of there. They're not aware of how bad the situation is because they can't think beyond the terms of their training. The threat has got to be of the kind they're used to facing, susceptible to being destroyed by the kind of technology they've brought with them. Yeah, the traps they lay are for two or three guys trying to destroy them, guerrilla warriors, something like that. The breaking point to this plan begins when Dylan tells Dutch that now he's laid the trap, who's going to play the cheese? Dutch sits there for a second, doesn't take it too well, and he realizes that Dylan is right. There's a problem with this plan, there's no bait. As it turns out, that's a matter of faulty thinking, but it doesn't affect the action. They're still under the delusion that they can hide themselves in the jungle. And it turns out that that's not so, that both their presence and their technology is obvious to their enemy. What follows is another cycle of killing. The traps are sprung actually accidentally by a wild pig, which is slaughtered by Mac in a fit of rage, which again suggests that these people are at the edge of insanity. This guy thinks the pig might be the monster he's hunting. That shows both the basically physical anger and fighting instinct that defines manliness, and at the highest level, this sense that you can animate nature. Soon enough, they learn, however, that all their technological traps are useless because they're too easily detectable. The way they deal with this is to create a new system of traps that's made from material they find in the jungle. The CIA guy calls this Boy Scout bullshit. But it turns out to be much smarter because this is the sort of stuff that doesn't stand out. It achieves invisibility unlike their technology. But at the same time it's supposed to teach them, although they're not really learning this, that they need stuff from the jungle, that they are not self-sufficient. And that on the other hand they have to compromise to some extent their thinking that they're up to the job. They should be learning new things. What they're trying to do is do the same trap system with different materials as if it made no difference to their hunt when they change the materials. They are still thinking at this point in terms of hunters. After that initial moment of hysteria, they're going back to rationality means going back to the tactical training for warfare they brought with them in the jungle. They're not learning anything from the jungle at this point. Yeah, what clues them in as to the failure of the first set of traps is that none of them were um, sprung. 
that at the same time, whatever predator is chasing them got what it wanted, one of the dead bodies. They did that seamlessly. So they decided they have to now prepare for um, an attack from the air as well. They're not facing a being that is grounded as they are. They're not facing a being that is limited as they are. And they're going to try to set up traps so that the predator comes into a secondary set of traps. They realize that it has the capacity to avoid their high-tech traps. And so they try and lure it in or funnel it in into a more hidden arrangement. They begin to take more seriously the principle of the jungle that to be seen is to die. In the beginning they had control of who sees what when they attacked the guerrilla. And then they lost that when they confronted the predator. And now they're beginning to get that back. They learn that they have to hide their traps as well, not just themselves, to blend as seamlessly as possible in the jungle. So the question there is who truly belongs in the jungle, or who is best at living in it. And this system of traps is much more successful. The predator is caught in the net, it escapes immediately, they all catch a glimpse of it and the impossible thing that they're facing. But it's not sufficiently successful, so a couple of more people get killed. One of them, the Mexican guy, gets killed because of one of these traps. Somehow he's careless, gets hit by one of the logs that were intended for the predator. He now becomes a liability and uh, they have to abandon their plan to fight the predator a second time and start running. Except for Mac, who decides to avenge his fellow Vietnam veteran. At this point, one thing becomes obvious about manliness. In one specific sense, it is uh, a fatalism. This guy and his best friend were the only two members of the recon platoon who had survived. They knew that they were no different to anybody else, and so came up with a certain version of survivor's guilt. They couldn't understand why they lived when the others died. Their particular excellence as soldiers was not what made the difference between life and death. The strange, accidental character of their survival was brought home to them because they emerged unscathed. Now, one of them has been killed in an inexplicable way and the other one is trying to avenge him. This shows that one way in which manliness tries to make sense of the world is revenge. To give as good as you get. What happens instead is that this guy joins his friend, he is also slaughtered. But he dies by his principle, which is stealth, unlike his friend, whose principle was uh, noise. Turns out that he's not as stealthy as the alien, he's just alone. The next guy to die is the CIA man who feels the need to redeem himself in a certain way. His principle was that each man is an expendable asset, that foreign policy requires monstrous things and that's all there is to it. Better American than Soviet, whatever you have to do. When once he's actually confronted with men dying in front of his eyes, he realizes that he cannot live up to that. He cannot be so inhuman. And so he tries to redeem himself and his humanity and their humanity by taking a stand. He's not hiding. He's not trying to live by stealth. He's in fact close to a duel. He's slaughtered in an up close and personal way, impaled on a massive claw after one of his hands is taken off with a blade. It turns out that this kind of tit-for-tat morality is not going to work, that you cannot get revenge on this kind of predator, you cannot have a fair fight with him. He's not there to reassure you that your actions will have consequences that are predictable to you and somehow within your powers. The jungle just swallows these people up as well. As the few survivors run away, the 
Indian, Billy, also decides to go issue a challenge. And this is the first hint we have that there's something about the nature of man, not just the natural setting of the jungle that is at stake here. He abandons his modern equipment and goes away with a knife to fight. He's supposed to protect a certain tree trunk bridge. He's supposed to buy time at least for his friends to survive, to run away. But at the same time to do something noble. Instead of all that, what you get is you hear a horrible scream as he is murdered and then you see his skull and spine taken out for a trophy and maybe discarded as insufficiently trophy-like. Also this sense that you could issue a challenge, that you could stand as man-to-man -to, -man to this monster, this understanding of manliness is also defeated. So at this point it's just uh, Dutch, the Mexican soldier and Anna. Dutch does a couple of things to try and save both of them. He keeps carrying the wounded uh, soldier as much as he can. Finally they're encroached on again. The wounded soldier is killed to be taken out of the way and Anna does something. She tries to pick up the gun to shoot at the predator. Dutch has to kick it out of her hands throw her out of the firing line of the predator, in the process gets himself shot. It seems like again Dutch is trying to protect people, there is never any question of abandoning the wounded or leaving them behind or anything like that. And uh, he gets shot but doesn't get killed, there's a weapon that protects him and Anna runs one way, Dutch willingly runs another to draw the predator away from the woman. As he does this, he falls through a ravine and into a huge waterfall. This would be the fastest way to travel at this point through the jungle and away from the predator and so it's really fortuitous. When he lands somewhere on the side of the river after he falls through two waterfalls, he gets embroiled in a, in a, a lot of clay, his body becomes completely covered. The more he crawls and uh, tries to go away from the predator, he becomes completely camouflaged. The predator no longer sees him, can no longer detect his heat. By degrees, Dutch learns that this is how they've been tracked. Now, one thing that's really startling is that the predator goes away and Dutch doesn't run. He decides to make a stand and he's in a better position now because he no longer has anybody to care for, no longer has a team to order. At this point, he realizes he has certain advantages and he begins to use them more seriously. He uses the mud, he uses fire, illuminates certain parts of his battlefield, he decides what the battlefield is going to be, and that after all his preparation, he issues a great roar. Now, the preparation entails uh, at least one added thing from the previous sets of traps that the team had set up. There's not just one trap anymore, there's a trap behind the trap, and this seems to have been one of the failings of the net that they had set, to, set up to begin with, which was that they used the mines and the tripwires to funnel the predator into a certain point, but that trap did not have any killing power. The way he does it here, he hides a dropping boulder behind a set of spikes and he hopes that something, one or the other, is going to prevail. At the same time he uses fire, he has two cartridges from um, a grenade launcher that um, he, he uses to make a bow and arrow and shoot those as uh, bombing arrows. So now he's using both modern and ancient technology together to fight because he's learned how the predator sees. Now he can design a battlefield in accordance with what's actually happening rather than what he's been trained to expect discovering accidentally that clay conceals his heat and renders him invisible teaches him how the predator looks at things. Life is heat. 
because he can now effectively conceal himself he can begin to look at the predator to notice his weaponry his constitution and he's finally learning the fact that he doesn't run away is tied up with the way he sits passively observing the urgency of everything tied up with his team has disappeared and now his mind is clear it's a strange thing to think that the previous human concerns were slowing his mind down but it's true he felt invested in believing what everybody else believed because to do otherwise would have been betrayal but now he's alone not by choice his only action being to save the woman by keeping her inoffensive and therefore not a target for the predator and in that sense he shows that he's still trying to protect humanity not just save his own skin for example after that he shows that he's standing up in a manly way for humanity by trying to destroy this monster in an intelligent way throughout the movie the question of intelligence what do you know about how to kill about who is your enemy plays out in conflict after conflict but this is uh, only the second time when he observes something like the entire team was observing the guerrilla compound in the beginning this is why his new definition of a battlefield and the tools adequate for the job is intelligent part of that intelligence shows not only in trying to attack but in diversions a trap within a trap is a diversion the use of fire to blind by light and by heat combined is also a diversion that shows something about the relationship between mind and invisibility the superiority of the predator throughout was that he was invisible and other people couldn't think about in what ways they were visible to him now this advantage has been taken away from him and the way dutch manages his fight organizes things around a new principle the principle of the jungle i, I said before is that to be seen is to die his new principle is to hide intention within accident he accidentally discovers the clay that hides his heat and he uses further accidents like they had with uh, material from the jungle to hide their intentions it's just that now he does a thorough job and so you see in the last act which is the one where there's almost no talking way more intelligence than in the others where there was much more talking only this is a true confrontation in a natural setting between two different kinds of beings I think that at this point there's also something else that's reaffirmed right throughout the movie you see Dutch as uh, being looked at as the strongest of them in one way or another he's, he's supposed the to be leader. the toughest yes but I don't only mean in terms of the order and the team I mean as a, as a man he's supposed to be highly endurant in the last fight that's where this shows up immensely so he gains the camouflage ability by accident he also loses it by accident he keeps trying to shoot at the predator with the exploding arrows he gets at him a couple of times destroys his cannon and uh, then he's forced to run out of hiding because the predator has a triangulating process in his visor where he can pinpoint Dutch's location by the things that he throws at him. He's forced to jump when he's discovered, even with a camouflage. Lands in water, loses the clay on his skin, can now be seen again. When the predator corners him, that's when um, he looks at Dutch and there's some sense in which Dutch's aspect is interesting to the predator because he begins to strip himself. I mean Dutch's aspect and not only his deeds so far, the fact that he has accomplished so much against the Predator. He he does show curiosity for his head. Yes. It seems like this would be an adequate trophy. 
Sure, but he relinquishes the um, claw and any other appendages. He decides to make it a man-to-man -man fight, as it were. Yeah, it seems like this would be a recognition of mutual intelligence. The more Dutch is horrified, he says, what the hell are you? The more the predator is persuaded that they can have a fair fight, that he's not just an animal. Yeah, and the fight is really one-sided. There is absolutely nothing that Dutch and all his toughness can do except bear as, as many of the punches as he can. And I think that's, I would say, touching, but it's not the proper word for it. All of this hiding intention, inside accident and so on, there's a deep requirement at the base level for being able to take some of the punches because with all the planning that Dutch does, accident can't be overruled. He still loses his camouflage, he still loses his advantages, and he has to take a great beating to get to his position of overpowered alien. Yeah, but that comports with his arrangement. He has learned that the predator can be tricked because he is arrogant, and he himself can win because he starts from a position of humility and vulnerability. He knows that he's in deep trouble and that to get himself out of it will require that he be both the bait in the trap and on the other hand the mind executing the, the trap. Yeah. It's this new sense of vulnerability and what he has to learn from accidental events that sees him through. So at the end he manages to lure the predator in. The predator does become aware of the first line of the traps and somehow he brings himself, it's not clear whether by Dutch's design or not, into the bullseye of the second trap. Then Dutch falls in exhaustion. He realizes that there's still motion in the predator and he wants to bash it in. Then he sees that it's no longer necessary, that it's completely broken. But the predator is uh, launching uh, his last weapon. There's a bomb. He's not about fair play either and Dutch has to run away before the explosion. This is supposed to suggest that these are two different conceptions of manliness after all. Dutch really is protective of the lives of others and the alien really is arrogant enough to turn his strength into a death cult. He risks his life out of his arrogance, not for any other reason, and wants to destroy everything with him in dying. Nothing can live if he doesn't. So you see that something that started as an action movie and threatened to turn into a horror eventually shows a deep understanding of different uh, ways of thinking through the problem of manliness and war and striving and what it might mean to have a real hero. Well, we hope to have shown you that this action movie is not just mindless explosions or the thrill of uh, alien attacks and conflicts between uh, men and monsters. And we hope to have persuaded you that the action movie is a deep and searching inquiry into American manliness and the American situation. And we'll be talking about John McTiernan and Shane Black movies again in the future. See you soon, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.